great feat of the American entrepreneurial political economy is in remaining stable and secure enough to attract investment and risk-taking while welcoming new approaches that challenge existing companies, both big and small. Entrepreneurs from Cornelius Vanderbilt to Jeff Bezos can enter an industry and take customers away from the established firms, and those firms usually have little recourse outside of business competition. And those emerging entrepreneurs can go on to build large companies and direct enormous investments with little fear that governments will confiscate or undermine their gains. Hi, welcome to Forbes India's The Daily Tech Conversation, where we bring you insights from tech entrepreneurs, CXOs, and investors from around the world whose work has a bearing on India. I'm Hari Arakli, and my guests today are Howard Walk, an American entrepreneur who was also an advisor to the US government under President Bill Clinton, and John Landry, an economics and business historian and former editor of Harvard Business Review. In this episode, Howard and John talk about their new book, Launchpad Republic, America's Entrepreneurial Edge and Why It Matters, that will be released tomorrow. They also talk about the combination of the factors that made America the world's biggest entrepreneurial success, in which upstarts always tend to come in and reset the balance, no matter how powerful the incumbents might seem. John, uh, Howard, thank you so much for making time for this podcast and welcome to this conversation with uh, Forbes India. So I'm really excited to know more about your book and you know, kind of the conversations that went into thinking of the topic and so on. Just for our audience, maybe you all could start and uh, start with a very brief uh, snapshot introductions about yourselves, your work, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Howard Walk. I'm uh, one of the co-authors. Uh, this book has been a project for roughly seven or eight years. Um, and uh, my background is as a, uh, I was a lawyer in the White House. I worked in the Clinton administration, but most of my life has been as an entrepreneur, both in a family business and as a startup entrepreneur. And I've always felt that um, many people didn't quite appreciate the dynamism within uh, uh, America. Many people sort of think of the private sector as the private sector. And um, as an entrepreneur, uh, I've lived experience where it's a very competitive market and being a startup trying to tackle bigger companies is a, an important part of the ecosystem. And so I felt that uh, the book it, it would be an important opportunity to really explain how dynamic uh, the American economic system is and the entrepreneurial vibrancy that keeps it fresh. Uh, and John and I met um, through some mutual acquaintances and I, I have love of history uh, and John is a historian, and so we decided to collaborate. Yeah, I'll take it here. Uh, so, yeah, John Landry, and uh, I, as Howard said, I'm a, I was trained as a historian. I, uh, I specialized in uh, American economic development, and uh, Howard had already written, I think, a first draft of the book, and he brought it to me, and uh, he initially wanted help with uh, the writing, but uh, since I had the historical background, I worked on that as well. And that's, uh, make a long story short, that's how we became co-authors. I uh, He has much more of a legal background than I do, obviously. And so I focused on the more general business and economic uh, historical points where, uh, but um, the, the basic ideas about uh, dynamism from a political economy that favors entrepreneurship, that was, I think, in the original manuscript, and uh, we just sort of expanded it out with uh, more of the history 
And uh, that's how he got the book where it is now. All right. Uh, just very briefly, because I'm curious, uh, how did you two know each other? So uh, Howard uh, approached me uh, through, as he said, mutual acquaintances with okay. um, initially to help. Uh, so one of the things I do is I'm uh, I'm a historian, but I also do a lot of uh, writing for business, uh, various kinds. I used to be an editor at Harvard Business Review. So yeah. he initially approached me as somebody who knew history, but could help with the writing. And then when I told him about my background, then, then I started uh, making more substantive editions. And he finally said, well, you should be the co-author. So that's how it worked out. All right. Very nice. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, why this particular topic, I mean, give us a glimpse into you know, the kind of conversations. And you said, of course, there was already a first draft. Maybe Howard can take it from here. Just give us a sense of what led to this topic. And I guess you could also then delve into a snapshot of the historical and the current context for this book. Yeah, I, maybe I should start with, with my family business, which is one of my uh, business experiences that I've had for really quite some time, for 20 years, 25 years. My dad is a small business person. He had started a, a motor club uh, like what we have here in the United States, AAA. And um, he was a scrappy upstart. And he figured out how to compete with AAA and also General Electric, which had a, a motor club at the time, by uh, being aggressive, menuizing the offerings, pricing things aggressively, customizing the services uh, for clients and opening up new markets for distribution. And he was able to find niches that allowed him to compete with two of the most powerful incumbents in the industry. And over a period of 15, 20 years, that business has grown into something quite sizable. Now we find ourselves as the largest provider uh, in the field. GE has left the business. AAA has competed in its own area, but different from ours. And now we're an incumbent and we're forced to defend ourselves, protect our interests, try to compete with a new generation of upstarts that are trying to compete with us. And I think there's something wonderful about that dynamism, wonderful about the opportunities for upstarts, wonderful about the way it keeps incumbents fresh. And if you look at American history, I think there are lots of examples of how that dynamism happens and how the legal system and the, the political system and the political economy has morphed to accommodate that evolution uh, to allow innovation and new ideas to reach the market, reach their levels, but not get so big that they squelch other innovators down the road. Uh, and they force big companies, if they're going to stick around, to be more aggressive, more innovative, and more thoughtful so that they stay fresh. Mm. John, do you want to take on uh, the point about a uh, little bit of the historical context and also the current context uh, for this book? Well, uh, I think there, I, I shared Howard's concern that there was a, an underappreciation of entrepreneurship. Uh, the interesting context of this book is that when we were working on it in 2018 or 19 or so, uh, there was a widespread sense that entrepreneurship had sort of failed. Uh, there were fewer small businesses, fewer startups. When there were startups, they were just getting bought out by the big companies, hmm. and that uh, the dynamism was coming more from big companies than from uh, the startups. And so I think the book, in some ways, for a while, was a sort of a defense of entrepreneurship. Uh, and now the book is coming out 
in 2020 here in 2022 when entrepreneurship now is booming and it's the big companies that are uh, having question marks and uh, because there's been this revival of entrepreneurship and there's a realization about the dynamism that comes from entrepreneurship. However, uh, I think it's still true and Howard, I, I think you would agree with me that uh, that there's still an underappreciation of the power of entrepreneurship. There's still, uh, certainly in history, there's a sense of that you can just take entrepreneurship for granted uh, and that what really matters are the decisions of governments and big businesses and the entrepreneurship just sort of happens somehow magically and uh, it's not something we really need to worry about. Uh, and we made our, our book basically argues that no, entrepreneurship is really vital to the dynamism of an economy, and you need to make sure that the political economy supports entrepreneurship. So maybe delve into the why a little bit more. Why, why do you say that you feel that is in the U.S. an underappreciation of entrepreneurship? Uh, so there are many reasons, um, but I think there's a uh, sense of uh, that the people who tend to comment on these things tend to take a large organization, big company perspective, a sort of a, a kind of an intellectual academic perspective. They don't, uh, they don't take big risks in their own lives. And so they don't really appreciate the power of risk uh, for challenging upstarts, uh, for, for when upstarts challenge incumbents, just how uh, profound a kind of risk taking that is and what it really uh, means for somebody to try that. And uh, whereas they're much more comfortable in thinking about an administration and, and, and sort of big picture decisions by government. Uh, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think there are many reasons. We're also a more mature company, a country where the uh, there just simply are more decisions to be made about administration than there were maybe 100 years ago. Mm. Uh, so I think that's that helps to feed the bias. Um, but I think a lot of it is simply that there's just not an appreciation of what a the, the life of the entrepreneur is and how difficult, but yet how powerful it is and how vital it's been for the growth of the economy. Yeah, I mean, I, I would answer it a bit differently in the sense that I think America has a great appreciation for entrepreneurship um, and, and the risk taking. Um, but when entrepreneurs become very successful, uh, then people start to change uh, their tune a bit. And uh, in truth, as entrepreneurs become successful, they do morph into big, powerful incumbents. And so they change their behavior uh, quite a bit often. Um, and so that's, a, that's an issue. But somehow um, the, the, the overall appreciation for entrepreneurship starts to wane as these companies get bigger. And that's why they start to get under a bit of assault. And um, I think then a certain degree of populism comes in and, and, and a backlash comes in. And we've seen some of that. Um, and, and I think that's an important uh, aspect to American culture in that we don't like to see entrepreneurs become too successful. Uh, we do. We appreciate them. We, 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 we champion them. But, but we really don't love, love the idea of incredibly powerful entrepreneurs. But um, uh, we just have to be careful that we don't uh, overreact uh, in, in, in our pushback against that success. Yeah, that, I just want to add, that's an important point that American culture, this is something we talk about in the book that mm. uh, compared to a lot of other countries, uh, American cultures are always kind of had a general uh, appreciation and so even celebration of upstarts and challenging uh, entrenched uh, incumbents. And that on a 
in a, on a general level, we definitely do uh, like it. Uh, we we celebrate it, uh, but we don't like it when the entrepreneurs get powerful because then it becomes the other the other angle. Um, but there's a there, there's a sort of deep seated appreciation for challenging the big guy here, which is great for entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, on on that point, would you say uh, today the the level of power that uh, the some of the biggest companies in the U.S. Um, Amazon, uh, Tesla, some of these companies, Google, the power that they wield today, would you say that is unprecedented uh, historically? Or would you say that in each era of entrepreneurship in the US, there have always been people who've been very powerful, but maybe this time, because of the level of globalization and the reach of the internet, things seem a little bit different and a bit more complicated. Well, let me address the historical angle and Howard, you can talk about the present. Uh, but no, historically, there have been much more powerful companies. Uh, if you think about the post-war period, mm. where you had th- uh, basically an oligopoly in the United States, and, and so arguably there was an oligopoly, oligopoly worldwide with a few other companies, uh, in terms of the automobile industry. Mm. And it was very stable, and you had one really big company, General Motors, and it just had a kind of dominance of not just sales, but also labor markets and there, it was just really striking how uh, how culturally and politically and economically dominant it was. And we don't have any companies that are all like that. And it's interesting. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of worry that these that these that big tech say was just becoming entrenched because of uh, technical factors, and we were going to be uh, having to deal with them for a long time. And in the last few years, we've seen that even. You know, seemingly impregnable incumbents like Facebook have been uh, challenged with new kinds of uh, technologies and social media. So, uh, I think historically, uh, this is definitely not a time of maximum uh, corporate power. Yeah, look if you if you look historically, uh, Standard Oil, uh, yeah. uh, Carnegie, um, railroads—they were incredibly powerful and they were um, attacked. Uh, understandably, for having too much power. We talk in the book about uh, A&P, the, the, the grocery chain, was at one point incredibly powerful, and there was a lot of um, concern that it was um, squeezing out groceries, small grocers around the country. And um, the truth is the government has um, tried to uh, curtail some of that power, um, and that had some role, uh, although ultimately what, what curtailed these, these players more than anything was continue waves of innovation and continue waves of disruption. Uh, you know, canals, you get railroads, railroads, the automobile, airlines, other kinds of transportation networks. That's what ultimately undid railroads. With A&P, people moved to the suburbs, new types of um, formats, store formats and technologies came into play. That's what undid A&P. And I think what you have here uh, now is this one wave in a continued history of uh, entrepreneurial companies that became that become super powerful. Uh, and maybe with globalization and maybe with information, uh, network effects and things of that sort, they may seem uh, insurmountable now. But I do suspect that over the next 15 or 20 years, new entrants are going to come in, new technologies are going to disrupt, new consumer trends are going to emerge. And that will ultimately do more than um, the government uh, in terms of curtailing the power of these uh, new big tech firms. Um, not to say the government doesn't have any role, but I'm personally more hesitant to have the government take the lead on this and, and meddle too much into 
these areas, which often devolve into interest politics, uh, and, and allow uh, the market uh, and new entrepreneurs to uh, unseat the old. Um, I would just add that in a world where venture capital is so plentiful, uh, I think there are lots of possibilities for disruption, um, and or at least nipping at the heels of many of the big players, uh, and, and we will see over the next 10 to 15 years, not their demise, but uh, new technologies and new players emerge that might uh, lessen their power. Yeah, I mean, to my mind, looking from outside uh, at America, this point about uh, upstarts coming in to uh, unseat incumbents and a, uh, and, a, and a country with a government and indeed a culture that kind of uh, uh, celebrates, as you said, this whole uh, kind of you know, constant upheaval, upstarts coming in, new, new technologies coming in. And you said that it's more likely that this process will uh, you know, uh, change things rather than government regulation. To me, that seems to be at the heart of what really uh, helps uh, startups in the US succeed. So I'm just uh, thinking, maybe you could uh, talk about, uh, you know, I'm sure there are multiple factors, but maybe talk about one or two things that to your mind that make the biggest difference in your view in, in uh, facilitating entrepreneurship in the US. Yeah, I mean, for, first for sure is access to capital, particularly risk capital and especially venture capital. Uh, you know, that has been an American um, trademark over the last 30 years or 40 years, and that's continued to grow. And now that has been uh, an export industry, if you will, or it's something that's been copied around the world. Yeah. But I think that is an important part uh, of the American tradition. Prior to that, you know, small businesses relied on banks and local banks. But but now with venture capital, uh, I think that is that's a big enabler and one that's ultimately being replicated. Uh, the the second obviously is America's big market, which makes the risk reward um, profile very attractive, um, and uh, with that. The general sense that um, new technologies can get access to the market. Not always, but in large measure, there has been access to a big market uh, enabled oftentimes by these uh, tech platforms. And that's made it a very attractive market for uh, startups. And then finally, I would say just the rules of the game in the United States uh, are fairly open, that there are always outlets to challenge incumbents. It's not that, that because we have a balance of power and different access points, whether it's state governments versus federal governments, or whether it's the judiciary, or whether it's Congress, the executive branch, there's not one group in charge, so to speak. And that's usually made it easy for entrepreneurs to go and find, allow their innovation to find the light of day and to, and to find their way to get access to the market. And because consumers have a strong say, that's also um, led to increased access or calls for access of innovation. So those, I think those are the attributes in my mind would be decentralized risk capital, big markets and access to them, and a political and legal system that ultimately has allowed innovators to get access to the market without being uh, pushed down or um, curtailed. Hmm. Can you talk a bit more about the role of the government in fostering entrepreneurship in the U.S.? Um, uh, indeed, some of the things, uh, I mean, apart from the, the large size of the market, some of the other things uh, are being tried by other governments in other countries as well. But uh, to your mind, what stands out about uh, how the government sees itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis entrepreneurs? And 
and it always seems like uh, entrepreneurs in in the US are, are sort of constantly testing the limits of you know uh, how they engage uh, with the government and i think one of the examples you gave uh, palantir took on uh, the armed forces and won a, a lawsuit and so on so yeah talk to us about the role of the government a bit more well, maybe i'll start and then john can elucidate um sure. look America, uh, uh, the, the country's always been uh, very good when it comes to infrastructure and and supporting growth and whether it was uh, supporting physical infrastructure like canals and railroads or whether it were things like the GI Bill that helped encourage uh, education. Uh, those, I think, are important parts of where the government's played a very good role. Um, the, the government's also been very good in allowing these challenges to happen, as you mentioned, Palantir, Elon Musk, you know, has these very public run-ins with government, and he does it without fear of, uh, of um, you know, of, of a backlash, you know, from government authorities in a way that, might not be the same in, in other countries. Yeah. So those are where I think the government is is a very positive role in um, in, in, the, in the ecosystem is very positive for entrepreneurs to push hard and uh, and for new technologies to be developed. Where I think the government's been less effective are areas such as antitrust or regulation, where oftentimes it, it, it ends up being special interests that have a undue sway and oftentimes even discourages entrepreneurs. But that has been um, less of the story of the American government than the overarching sense, in my mind, that uh, we want to encourage growth, we want to encourage entrepreneurship, and we want to encourage people to uh, challenge um, and do it without any ramifications or, or too severe ramifications. Yeah, and uh, I, I want to add just a more general point that in the here in the United States, government is simply less imposing, particularly on the federal level. Hmm. There's a reason why... You know, here's Elon Musk, an immigrant from South Africa who doesn't have any special connections. I guess he was wealthy by then, but still, he was uh, not anybody that had any kind of special uh, privileges. And here he is suing the Air Force at NASA and basically saying, you need to treat me right as a supplier. Hmm. And, uh, the, you know, these, these government agencies have to back down. We have a legal system that supports th those kinds of entrepreneurial challenges. And... It, it's really emblematic of the fact that government is not seen as this, you know, all powerful, you know, prestigious, uh, you know, kind of ordering of society. It's 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 an important player, obviously. Uh, it's a vital player, but it's not seen with the kind of deep seated awe, I think, that it is in a lot of countries. And uh, and that goes in with a sort of a larger social openness, permission to fail. You know, you can. If you're an entrepreneur and you fail, it doesn't mean you can't get capital. You're not going to be ostracized. Uh, and so things are just more open here. The government doesn't just sort of say, okay, here's, here's how things are going to go. Uh, it's just one more player among many. Looking back, what's your, I mean, today, what, what do you think about the U.S. government's, uh, your, your central bank's response uh, to the global financial crisis, which indeed is caused by, uh, you know, financial entrepreneurs, I guess. So, but I mean, over the last 10 years, uh, one of the positive th things that came out of it is that, you know, in uh, startup ecosystems around the world have been funded because money became much more uh, inexpensive, I guess. But as I'm just thinking about what you make of how the U.S. government responded to that crisis back then. Well, I think the government's had a long-standing tendency to finance uh, entrepreneurs or support entrepreneurs. I mean, 
I looked at it in the, you know, the early 70s when there was pension reform that allowed uh, pensions to invest in riskier assets. And that even came back, even, even going into the 19th century, there was relaxation to the prudent man, man, the prudent man standard of investing that allowed um, um, certain entities to invest in railroad securities, which was viewed, which was viewed as very risky at the time. But even in the 70s, that became more so with the with changes to the employment, um, the ERISA Act that allowed pensions to invest in venture capital. Um, so that's been a longstanding tradition. Certainly after the financial crisis, the amount of cheap capital uh, has been um, remarkable. And I think that fueled high stock market valuations and those high stock market valuations helped uh, bring more venture capital uh off the sidelines and into the market. So it created a virtuous circle for entrepreneurship uh, and venture and venture capital for sure. Um, certainly the financial entrepreneurs is sort of a subset of entrepreneurship that's more controversial in the sense that uh, I think shareholder capital is an important is an important part of the American ecosystem as well. But when it comes to financial entrepreneurs, it has certainly enabled more excesses uh, that might be attractive to, to many. So um, the financial entrepreneurs as a subset, I think, has, gets more mixed reviews, uh, but certainly the uh, low-cost capital that ultimately fueled valuations, that ultimately you know, created a virtuous cycle of entrepreneurship and venture capital, I think, is always been positive. Uh, and it certainly has indeed spilled over to the rest of the world. Uh, I think the financial crisis was almost a kind of predictable uh, result of of sort of the excess that Howard you're talking about, where the government uh, we have a, this nice tradition of supporting entrepreneurship and decentralized financial markets and financial innovation, and that's great most of the time. And then sometimes it, it becomes disastrous. Uh, so, but uh, I think one of the hallmarks of the American political economy is its responsiveness and and not sort of collapsing into a kind of authoritarian uh, approach. And while we did have some important regulations, and as you say, we loosened up on, on capital after the financial crisis, I think there was a, a kind of responsiveness that still allowed innovation. We didn't just say, oh no, financial entrepreneurship is terrible, we need to stop it all. Uh, so the fact that we were able to recover from the crisis and still have some uh, financial innovation. Now, arguably, we maybe should have had more regulation, or you know, you can argue about that. But I think the end result was that we we continued to fund entrepreneurs, uh, that risk capital was still available, uh, that we didn't just sort of collapse into a kind of reaction of uh, you know shutting everything down. So uh, it is a balancing act, uh, and I think uh, there was it was a, the financial crisis was a terrible blow, uh, but uh, the the overall system continued. Mm. I recall uh, reading, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, I think, opinion pieces and features about how uh, so the, the sort of the rise of uh, the whole, uh, you know, financial engineering as against real engineering in the U.S. was one of the reasons that, you know, famed iconic companies like HP and IBM kind of lost their touch. I'm not very clued in on uh, about this idea. Uh, I'm just wondering... Uh, is this something that that you've seen, or would you argue that uh, there is still plenty of evidence of uh, you know entrepreneurs making real things in the U.S. that would be very very useful? Yeah, look, I, th I think if you look at the graduates of top business schools uh, and top colleges uh, ten years ago or fifteen years ago, 
uh, 20 years ago, it would be uh, investment banking and consulting would be the main places people would be going. Um, and then I think more recently, the, the number of folks who are going into startups uh, and who are going into engineering uh, it just has continued to increase. So I think I think the emergence of technology and entrepreneurship uh, and, its and its attractiveness uh, from a career perspective and a financial perspective um, has definitely increased in the United States. Um, certainly amongst the elite, you know, and, and mid-level uh, colleges and university grads. Um, because yeah. there was a period of time where I, where everybody wanted to go into private equity or everybody wanted to go into investment banking. That's still the case, especially uh, particularly on private equity. But I think the engineering cohorts um, and the entrepreneurial cohorts have definitely increased significantly over the last 10 years. Uh, I, I think uh, to get at your question about HP and some other companies, I think it's uh, it's definitely true that there was a period of, of what's called financialization, where there was more interest in uh, boosting your stock price uh, than in building fundamental value. And certainly General Electric really took a hit uh, on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd, I'd like to think that in the last couple of years, a lot of these big companies have realized the downsides of that kind of financialization, and they're making some adjustments. They're investing again in engineering and and, and basic value. Uh, I know General Electric is certainly trying to do that. And so uh, it was definitely a difficult period, but one of the, you know, it's, it's a downside of innovation and dynamism and openness that sometimes people take things too far. And that's certainly what's happened here. Uh, but the, the good thing about our system is that we can respond and companies can uh, fix themselves and the government doesn't just go in and rescue uh, a company like General Electric, which lost, you know, the vast majority of its value, and the government basically sat sat back and did nothing. And I think in a lot of other countries, the a big company like General Electric would have gotten help from the government and would have been slower in uh, reforming its practices. Yeah, and I think that in the case of GE and 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 HP, it also is a cautionary note for incumbents getting too large. Certainly, some of the pressures were driven by uh, the financial markets uh, and shareholder capitalism um, and and those kinds of pressures. But I think there was also a sense that companies get big, they get bloated, they get different incentives, they get different competencies, they're not as nimble, and it's hard to stay big. Whether or not that will also hold true for big tech firms, you know, in the next 10 years, I don't know, but it's hard to be... Uh, Fast growth when you have you know a million employees or three hundred thousand employees or you know a hundred thousand employees and multiple divisions and whatnot. So uh, I think I think the fact that the iconic startup of HP ended up having a break up into smaller units is somewhat of a blueprint that other companies might follow uh, down the road. From from your vantage point, um, if you look at you know the rise of uh scrappy entrepreneurs uh, like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and who became uh, now who have become now very powerful uh, corporate leaders of uh, you know two of the largest companies in the world uh, how do you think uh, future on future historians might look back and think about what that's meant to the lives of the ordinary Americans um, would you say that overall the rise of these entrepreneurs has been good for American society or are they better off uh, you know, before Amazon became so big or before Tesla became such a powerhouse? Um, 
I mean, I can just talk from my own personal experience. Uh, I grew up when uh, when uh, I was in graduate school and then on my own, uh, and I was there with the rise of Amazon. And I, I can say personally, it's been a huge convenience. It's just been wonderful in terms of getting all kinds of pro products. So conveniently, it saved me a lot of time that I would have had to spend shopping. Uh, and uh, there's and the business model of Amazon has been to really shake things up, not simply to apply technology, but to do it in a really creative and disciplined way. So I, I think Amazon has been a huge uh, benefit for American society. Now, the problem, as Howard just said, is once you're extremely successful, yeah. there's a tendency to gain a kind of power that can be dangerous. Um, so Amazon is obviously going to have to watch that, and we'll see if their uh, highly disciplined culture uh, can continue. We actually talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, and uh, I don't have an electric car, but I have relatives who have uh, Teslas, and they they think it's a terrific car, and it's improved their quality of life on some level. So, uh, uh, and and it it wasn't if we had just left it to the incumbents to develop electric cars, it would have been much slower. And it would not have been as good. And uh, we're seeing, you know, so something like Tesla is not only good in terms of pioneering, but it's forcing the incumbents to react and innovate as well. And so mm -hmm. entrepreneurs like Bezos and Musk, I think, give enormous value to society. And the only question is what happens with that power? Not um, the, uh, you know, we talk about in the book, I mean, there's a reason why uh, the United States became so uh, wealthy and affluent over time and not, not you know, it hasn't always been so well distributed, but uh, a lot of it has to do with entrepreneurs challenging incumbents and really pushing the envelope of development. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about in the book is really the distinction between uh, what's good for society in terms of consumers versus what's good for society in terms of, you know, small businesses and others mm -hmm. that get disrupted by these you know, new powers. Um, I think certainly in the case of Amazon, Google, Tesla, Apple, uh, it's clear that the consumer benefits. The consumer has better choice, lower cost, um, uh, can do things now with a degree of convenience that was unimaginable 15 or 20 years ago, and they vote with their feet. Uh, it's very similar, actually, as we mentioned in the book, to A&P, where, you know, people found it to be very disruptive to the small grocers, but people voted with their feet. People went to A&P because of um, it, it, it's, its standards, its convenience, its use of information technology that, that led to better uh, cost and value. So um, uh, from the consumer lens, I think this error would be pretty clear. Now, the question is, what does it do in terms of those entities that get disrupted? whether they're department stores or whether they're small retailers or Main Street providers. That's the harder thing to assess. Now, in some respects, all these big players enable a new set of small businesses who use those platforms to bring new products and services to market. So it does enable many new small businesses to come into the market, particularly new digital businesses. But the disruption for Main Street um, continues, and um, that that's the harder thing to uh, to reflect upon, you know, whether or not resources can be redeployed into new opportunities mm. or whether or not this inequality continues, I think is going to be uh, the big barometer that, that's going to be the, the determinant um, 
that historians look at down the road. Of that, along with how much power they continue to have, or whether they ultimately, um, you know, get re- reduced power either through the market or through. Mm-hmm. So again, historically, uh, I guess America more than anywhere else. Uh, known for the rise of uh, massive businesses on the back of you know huge consumption uh, would would you agree and uh, today in the context of uh, the climate change crisis what are people what are even people like you thinking about how this ought to change uh, you know sort of a, a hands off approach and uh, just allowing the same consumption based patterns to continue would obviously be disastrous and and i know the lot of lot of experts are now even calling for degrowth and so on so i'm just wondering yeah. uh, would you like to think a lot about this yeah well those those are really two questions let me address the historical question uh, i think it's a bit of a myth that american uh, economic history has been dominated by large companies when you look when you compare it to other countries mm. that uh, other countries germany japan for sure and and even countries like france they made uh they allowed large companies to form fairly early and they didn't have the same suspicions about big companies that we did now it's true we developed some very large companies but a lot of that as howard said is because we just have a really large market hmm. and that we are also good about uh expanding overseas but in terms of the overall relative size of our companies uh we we were not we were less dependent on big business arguably than i think a lot of other countries it's really just a kind of a a scale versus uh i'm not sure what they you know there it's not the only criteria of absolute size it's also relative size the fact that there were other players the fact that even a big company like us steel was always uh dealing with competition and uh, vulnerable uh so so i don't think uh we've been dominated by massive uh gov- uh companies we have been dominated by massive consumption you're right about that mm. uh so uh but in terms of fighting the climate change and I'll let Howard address this more but I think the fact that we haven't relied on big companies as much is one way we're going to help to solve this because ultimately overcoming the climate crisis is going to depend on entrepreneurs more than big companies mm. well i think i think there are a couple things that i, I certainly agree it is it is the big issue that and inequality are the two main issues that uh, the American entrepreneurial system is going to have to solve for. Um, but looking at its strengths, you know, consumers are getting more and more aware of uh, climate and using those choices um, and their power to make choices that support those companies. And, and I think that's an important uh, aspect of how uh, we'll help address climate change. Uh, I also think that large companies uh, are getting better and better uh, at using their supply chain and uh, other tools to be able to reduce waste and improve that. I don't think there's a big company or small company, but certainly not a big company in the country that's not having some point of view around climate change and what their role is going to be. Certainly the government's going to be important in terms of nudging that along, but I think the consumer is actually going to have quite a bit of power in terms of helping to drive that uh, those trends. Uh, and then Finally, on the entrepreneurs, look, look at Elon Musk. We talked about that. We could have been talking about fuel standards for another 10 years or 20 years. It was really an entrepreneur that uh, that, that drove this new market and is probably going to make more change uh, in terms of supporting you know, uh, the, the adoption of electrical vehicle, electric vehicles than anybody else in history. So 
Um, I, I, I think that's where that's the, that's the path forward on climate change. I think would be stronger uh, consumer pressure uh, and more entrepreneurial uh, innovation uh, to hopefully uh, force uh, either new innovations into market or to force larger companies to continue to adapt to respond to this. And with a little bit of government nudge, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you kind of want to distill uh, you know, your uh, hopes and worries uh, for entrepreneurship in the U.S., uh, can each of you talk about what gives you hope about American entrepreneurship today and its ability to you know, help sustain U.S. leadership? And, and what worries you the most? Uh, look, I'm very hopeful because there is a lot of entrepreneurial energy. A lot of people see the opportunity. There are more new technologies uh, coming to market every day. And there's also a lot of venture capital uh, ready and willing to back new ideas. I also am very optimistic because uh, more groups are starting to get into the entrepreneurial system and get access to this. Um, women, uh, veterans, uh, minorities, all all sorts of people are getting more access to the system and that is and, and venture firms are prioritizing bringing new groups into the system or supporting new groups so that to me uh, all bodes well for entrepreneurship and also bodes well for support of the american entrepreneurial system more broadly it's becoming more inclusive and i think that's a great um my worries are uh you still have uh, exacerbated inequality and um, we need to figure out ways to solve it that don't uh, undercut the whole uh, dynamism in the economy. So I struggle with how do we address uh, inequality in a way that doesn't lead to, you know, uh, policies that are going to lead to stagnation or, or disincentives or, or other, or other unintended consequences. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, I think anybody who's an, uh, an economic historian of America has to be uh, sort of almost automatically optimistic just because of the incredible progress we've seen over the last few hundred years. I mean, the, uh, how so many things have just gotten better. And one of the things that has added to my uh, hopefulness, I think, is that when we talk about the foundations of entrepreneurship and particularly this balancing act between private property rights and the right to compete, uh, it didn't come out just because of somebody had a brilliant idea or it wasn't just that there was a particular political party that pushed it. It wasn't a top-down uh, development. It really arose from just the size and the diversity of the country that they were just too, it was almost like in a law court uh, with an adversarial system. Uh, you, you uh, that the entrepreneurial system we have is more sort of like a compromise or a, a uh, result from you know different sides fighting each other, and so and those different sides are, are going to continue to fight each other, and so uh, I'd like to think that that's going to keep us from lapsing into some sort of of uh, of a stagnating system where we favor one approach over another. Uh, and so I think there's a vitality that comes from uh, our diversity. Uh, that said, I agree that uh, inequality is a huge problem and, and that we need to make sure that it doesn't get to be such a problem that we lose the dynamism, that we get uh, class structures and hierarchies that could undermine uh, the respect we have for entrepreneurship. All right. Fantastic. Um, 
if I could take a few more minutes before we wrap up, I was just wondering if uh, each of you might want to just uh, read from the book for uh, just for a minute or two, pick any part that you would particularly like to highlight. Okay, I, I, I have. So, challenging and limiting authority. Underlying the balancing act between upstarts and incumbents is the seldom appreciated tension between two central principles in American political economy, the right to property and the right to while often at odds, these principles emerged together centuries ago out of a general mistrust of powerful authority, especially monarchy. Both principles checked the possibility of government overreach, which is how they became embedded in the U.S. Constitution at the nation's founding. The American adoption of these principles emerged from long-running traditions dating back to the feudal system, most notably in England. Early property rights were recognized in 1215 in the Magna Carta, which protected the interests of the nobility from monarchical invasion. This concept of secured interest and limited royal prerogative carried over later to firming up property rights related to the issuance of royal grants and charters during the age of exploration. Wealthy gentry worried that central authorities would confiscate personal property while venturers sought certainty before investing time and resources to risky endeavors. Over time, these protections expanded to other enablers of commercial activity, such as contracts, insurance, and financial instruments, as well as patents for invention. Okay, so why don't I just continue then? Sure, sure. Okay, now this is on page 13. The great feat of the American entrepreneurial political economy is in remaining stable and secure enough to attract investment and risk-taking while welcoming new approaches that challenge existing companies, both big and small. Entrepreneurs from Cornelius Vanderbilt to Jeff Bezos can enter an industry and take customers away from the established firms and those firms usually have little recourse outside of business competition. And those emerging entrepreneurs can go on to build large companies and direct enormous investments with little fear that governments will confiscate or undermine their gains. They can leverage those gains into powerful market positions subject to certain limitations. They need fear only other major competitors or the inevitable upstarts trying to repeat the process or in many cases, their own ability, their own inability to adapt. America's system is seldom straightforward as market conditions change, information is often imperfect, political, political compromises are frequently required, and legal cases rarely tee up issues in a perfect or timely manner. The balanced government framework means that the various branches rarely move in lockstep, but the messy process generally works issues out over time. Other countries have enjoyed golden eras in which vibrant economic activity flourished for periods up to several decades or even a century. But what's remarkable about America's story is the relentless series of upstarts, disruption, and renewal, even as large companies emerged and succeeded. These upstarts often came up against vested interests, whether large political com company, large powerful companies or small businesses or workers who sought political and legal mechanisms to defend their turf. Yet enough of the upstarts prevailed to keep the waves of economic renewal flowing. And perhaps ironically, large companies and even some small ones were still able to thrive by staying on their toes. Behind all of these changes has been a legal, political and institutional system that adapted to and even encouraged this dynamism. Very nice. Uh, wonderful, interesting and insightful conversation, John. And I think Howard's uh, internet connections dropped off. Uh, please thank him for me and thank you so much again for making time for this. 
You're welcome. That's it for this conversation. You can find all our podcasts at ForbesIndia.com and on your favorite podcast apps. I'm Hari Arakali. Thank you for listening.